hot jam donuts, a cake's mysterious origin, and why you should always explore a laneway. This week, we're in Melbourne, Australia. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson. Welcome to Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. This is the place where we explore the great cuisine of the world at DestinationEatDrink.com and here on the Destination Eat Drink podcast. This week, we're exploring the great foodie city of Melbourne, Australia. But first, if you've been enjoying Destination Eat Drink, please consider dropping us a couple of bucks to help out the cause. You can do that at DestinationEatDrink.com and click on the Contribute button. Thank you so very much. Monique Bayer from Walk Melbourne takes folks on food tours around her city. You can find her at walkmelbourne.com.au. Monique and I talk about the city's deserved reputation as a foodie destination and the great foodie stops in the city, like the Queen Victoria Market and the South Melbourne Market. We also talk Aussie coffee and Chinese, Vietnamese, and Italian contributions to the exciting food culture of the city. And, of course, we talk wine. Okay, I'm starving, so let's eat. Destination Eat Drink. Monique Bayer from Walk Melbourne. Thank you so much for being on Destination Eat Drink. I've been wanting to do a show on Melbourne for quite a long time, and I'm so glad that we finally get to talk. Although we've only just met, uh, Melbourne has been a place that's been on my mind for a long time. Was that Brent? It just it keeps popping up over and over again as a place for foodies to go and visit. And then I found you and I'm like, oh, she's a foodie. She does tours of Melbourne. I gotta find a way to get her on Destination Eat Drink. You know, we um I meet travelers from all over the world um coming to Melbourne and quite often because it is the lesser known of the two cities of Australia. Um, people come here and they put a lesser number of days on their itinerary for Melbourne than Sydney. Um, and time and time again, what I hear from people is, oh, there's so much to do here. There's so much to get involved with, especially if they're foodies. We wish we spent more time in Melbourne um, than we'd allocated. So um, there's certainly a lot to do. I have, a, um, as most foodies in most places, would have a list of new places to eat and drink that I kind of try and get through in my phone. And I tell you what, it is ever-growing because the scene here is so dynamic. Um, there's always new places, um, not always fancy. Um, some of the street foodie kind of places and cafes are um, top of my list. Um, but, yeah, there's certainly a very dynamic scene here. Monique, I wanted to start this conversation with kind of an, an unusual question, and I'll get it out of the way quickly because I'm I'm often in, uh, interested in language. And as I was researching talking to you and researching Melbourne, I ran across a phrase that I wasn't familiar with. And I wanted to ask you about it right off the top because I just find it interesting. So um, it, it's called a laneway. And in, mm. in the U.S., we, we talk about alleyways. But I've sure. never seen the term laneway before. Are mm. laneways and alleyways the same thing? What 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 are they exactly, and how do they apply uh, when we're talking about Melbourne? 
Yeah, it's a great, great question because it, it does apply specifically to Melbourne. A laneway is an alleyway, but to give you a little bit of context, um, the downtown area of Melbourne sits on a half square mile grid. So it was designed by one of the um, first colonisers in 1837. Um, so when you actually look at a map of downtown Melbourne, it's very grid-like. Um, we've got um, five main streets that run one mile long and then nine intersecting streets that are half a mile. So it's very easy to get around in that respect. But what it means is that we've got this great structure for all of the gaps between the buildings and small streets that run between them. Um, have developed into this what we call laneway culture. Some of them you might walk down and you might just find a couple of dumpsters and not much else. Okay. A lot of them you'll walk down and they'll be absolutely filled with not only places to eat and drink but small stores, art galleries, boutiques, and it is often the preferred way for locals to navigate their way through the city in between the office and the train station on the way home or however, whatever they're doing, they'll often take the laneways um, instead of the main streets because they are more charming and more interesting. And the kicker about it is that they um, are never large enough for cars to navigate, so they are pedestrian only, which is lovely. So wander down the laneways. You never know what you might discover or it may just be a dumpster. So <laughs> good advice. Um, and you know what? Either way, um, they're all pretty safe. I know that there are lots of parts of the world where walking down the alleyways by yourself is not advised. Um, but in Melbourne, it is very, very rare for anything untoward to happen. So, um, you know, it's a great kind of um, um, opportunity to do some do some intrepid exploring through the city. And the great thing is you can't really get lost because the next main street that you pop out onto uh, will be part of the grid. So you just find yourself the next street corner and you'll know exactly where you are. Many folks that listen to this podcast know that um, I preach two big things to do as soon as you reach a new city. And the first is to go on the food tour. And we've got you talking about uh, Walk Melbourne, your foodie tour company. So check on that. Uh, the second thing Check. I always say is go to the local market because you can mm -hmm. discover so much cool stuff. You can find out what the locals are eating, discover maybe some exotic or unusual produce that you're not used to or some snacks and prepared food. And you can mingle with folks who are, are shopping there every day and the vendors. So Melbourne's a big city. You guys must have some great markets. We do, absolutely. So um, the market that a lot of visitors to Melbourne are um, drawn to is a market that is um, not only historical but also active on a daily basis and it is the Queen Victoria market, okay? Um, and there are people who live in and around the downtown area who will do their grocery shopping there and it is an absolute um, um, treasure trove of diversity through there. Um, it was built, it was opened in the late 1800s um, and an interesting story, there used to be a much... Um, bigger market at the eastern end of the grid um, and then the city council said oh we're building you that's it's getting a bit um rough and tumble up there we're going to build you a brand new uh, market just for retail food for wholesale food sorry for wholesale food right so the butchers and the grocers and whatever would have somewhere to just sell the food rather than being mixed up with all the entertainment as the old market was and then on the first week that it opened all the traders went over to the new queen victoria market all the wholesalers, and they said, this is great. Where's the wholesale section? And this is in the 1890s. And the guys who designed it, designed it said, um, this is it. 
and they laughed at them and they said, this is way too small. So even from the get-go, it was never big enough to be a wholesale market. So when you it did, and from the get-go, it ended up being a retail market for food. So when you walk through it, it feels quite lovely and cozy, and the smalls are reason the stalls are reasonably small. Um, and the actual hall that's famous is called the Dairy Hall. So it's an indoor section within the original building, and it is full of stalls where there is um, cheese, there are spices, there are snacks you can get. Probably the most famous store there is the Bratwurst store. So you can go there and when you do your grocery shopping on a weekend morning and go and pick up a German Bratwurst and walk around and eat that. There's a Turkish Borek stall. Um, and it's just a real demonstration of the ethnic diversity um, that Melbourne can offer, um, not just in the dairy hall, but you kind of walk out the back where the uncovered section where the vegetables are. Um, and you can get such a diversity of all the great um, immigrant food that's come to Australia, the Mediterranean vegetables, a lot of things from China and Southeast Asia, um, a lot of Middle Eastern style influence as well. It's just fantastic. What do you like to grab when you go to the Queen Victoria market? Is there any um, exotic fruits or vegetables that you uh, have been experimenting with that you think, oh, I'm going to add this to my kitchen? I always get really tempted by the treasure trove of Asian greens. There's always something there I've never quite used before, and it always looks so fresh that you just kind of look at it and you want to cook with it. You know, you want to throw that in the wok or in a soup or something like that. So I do love that. I love all the fruits and veggies. Um, and, of course, I do a lot of myself. I do a lot of Mediterranean cooking. Um, so we're always looking for the nightshades, the the um, eggplants and capsicums and that sort of thing when they are in season. Summer's just a delight down there. Having said that, the Queen Victoria market is not my favourite market in Melbourne. My favourite market is the South Melbourne market, which okay. is almost the same distance from the downtown but on the south side instead of the north side, and it's kind of in the local area where I live. So um, not only um, beautiful um, vegetables and fruits as well, but uh, one of the best areas in Melbourne to go for brunch and coffee. So you can always kind of head down for breakfast, have a delicious coffee, and then wander around and um and do your veggie shopping, which is fantastic. I want to talk to you about coffee uh, shortly, but I did want to share with you that, you know, I, I love the idea that you've got all of these uh, Chinese vegetables uh, available to you because here in where I live, um, we're in a city south of Lisbon, and in my city, mm. there is a, a pretty good... Chinese expat community living here, but it's not that easy in my city to find uh, Chinese vegetables. Um, yeah. If you go to Lisbon, you can, but there is a storefront uh, that's been vacant for a while and they've got a poster up saying coming soon, uh, Chinese market. So I got my fingers crossed that I'm going to be able to enjoy something besides bok choy in the very near future. And amazing, and I'm and I and I hope that they're going to be growing something there for you because I think that the climate in Portugal with the heat um, would be great for growing some of those Asian greens. So as long as you've got enough water there, uh, maybe you'll be getting something special. I hope so. Um, you mentioned coffee, so let's talk about coffee culture oh, in Brent, Melbourne. It's my special subject. You you do a, a focused coffee tour. It it kind of blows my mind that. Australia and New Zealand, too, are both so coffee-centric in their lives. This is where I fell in love with the flat white. And, um, you know, I, I just love the fact that you guys make coffee such a central part of your lives. So go ahead, evangelize about coffee in Australia and Melbourne. 
So um, to start off with, we'll talk about quantity before we talk about quality. But in the half square mile grid that I described earlier, Melbourne has just over a thousand places to get a coffee. Um, and what that means is that um, last time I checked, that is the highest per capita rate of coffee shops in the world. Um, by kilos of coffee drunk per person, we are not the highest. That belongs to the people of Finland, that honour. Right. We certainly do love a coffee shop here in Melbourne. Um, and a lot of Melbournians will be quite obsessed um, with going to their favourite independent cafe to get the coffee done just the way they like it. What's your favorite style of coffee? Because there's, I, I just did a video recently in Lisbon where I did eight different styles of uh, coffee drink in one day. And I told my friends I didn't even have to take the train home. I just flew. <laughs> that didn't even cover everything that's available in Lisbon. So um, tell me a, about a couple different kind of coffee drinks that we should try when we come to Melbourne. So um, if you want the most common drink, the one that um, is the most popular by Country Mile, it is a flat white or a cafe latte. They are essentially the same drink now. They weren't start, they didn't start off as the same drink, but they are essentially both a white coffee now. And I know that some of your listeners who are very astute will say, well, what is the difference? Um, a cafe latte is a normal Italian white coffee. Um, it is one shot of espresso um, served in a glass topped up with steamed milk and then a little bit of the foam on top. And normally what we do is line up two fingers at the top of the glass and the foam should kind of go um, two fingers deep, um, if that makes sense, mm -hmm. um, in terms of the head of the um, of the of the foam. Um, now, the, the story goes, the one that I go with, is that um, somewhere in New Zealand a long time ago, a few decades ago, a particular barista kept getting asked by his customers for a strong latte with less foam. And he got asked one too many times, so he just made a new drink, which was a double shot latte with less foam, and he called it the flat white. Right. <laughs> so the difference between the two drinks should be an extra shot of coffee and a little less foam. But I have to say that across most of Australia and New Zealand now, uh, I actually shouldn't include New Zealand because their coffee culture is a little bit different, but across most of Australia, um, you'll be hard-pressed to find a cafe that makes a big effort to make a difference between a flat white and a latte. They are essentially the same drink, which is fine. And you're going to need to be careful if you make it up to Sydney anytime soon and tell them that a flat white was invented in New Zealand because uh, <laughs> the folks in Sydney take a lot of pride that they invented the flat white. And that's it's always interesting to have what I call these little food wars, which are, you know, they're not wars, obviously. They're just little uh, uh, dust ups between people saying, I invented it. No, I invented it. And uh, when I talked to Justin Steele and um, yeah, I noticed that he's like, yeah, it was invented here in Sydney. <laughs> I'm like, hey, man, whoever wants to fly the flag, fly the flag. That's it's all good. And that's what I say. And I don't know if you picked up at the very beginning of that story. I was careful to say um, it's kind of the story I believe is this one. Right, right. You know, we, have this, uh, we have this other little food war with New Zealand as well about our national dessert. Uh, and it's the national dessert of both countries because we um, can't decide who invented it. And I'm happy to share. But anyway, um, called the pavlova. Yeah, the pavlova. Um, so no one quite knows where the pavlova was invented. We know the context, we know the reason, and we know the request. We know why it was invented, but we're not exactly sure where it was, which I think is really strange. It was the, uh, wasn't it named after a ballerina or something? 
Correct. Yeah, so Anna Pavlova, a Russian ballerina, did a tour of Australia and New Zealand in the 1920s. Um, and one uh, a chef was tasked with creating a dessert as light as a ballerina. Hmm. And so he went for a very fluffy meringue um, style dessert with some cream and fruit on top. And so we have the pavlova. But, yeah, um, we do fight over whether Australia or New Zealand invented that one. And when I say fight, in a very, very friendly manner. Yeah, big brother, little brother type thing. It's hard to fight with Kiwis. They're just so nice. (laughs) It's hard to have a real fight with them. (laughs) It's so true. When we went to New Zealand back in 2019, 2018, 2019, we were there for New Year's. We made so many good friends there because they are, yeah. the Kiwis are so nice. Yeah. Yeah. Unflappable. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. Definitely. I, I guess, I guess when you're in a small country and you're kind of isolated, that's what happens. Maybe that's why the Portuguese people are so nice too. Um, yeah. I want to talk about your uh, foodie discovery tour at Walk Melbourne because mm. I'm, I'm fascinated with Italian cuisine around the world, not just in Italy, but around the world, because I lived Mm. in uh, Rhode Island for a long time. And there's, uh, you wouldn't know this, but there's a huge Italian-American population in Rhode Island. So um, Italian-American food and the Italian-American diaspora, the Italian diaspora in in New England and in Rhode Island is... Very near and dear to my heart. So when I see that you've got uh, an Italian community and Italian cuisine, I want to jump right on top of that. So talk to me about your foodie discovery tour, but also if we could talk a little bit about Italian cuisine during that, that would be wonderful. Yeah, sure. So the foodie discovery tour is um, designed to do a couple of things, Uh, three hours in length, not that much walking. Um, Mostly what we do is tell a few stories and we discover all those laneways that uh, we talked about earlier in the tour Mm -hmm. uh, because I find that a lot of people, if they're not used to walking through laneways um, like we are in Melbourne, uh, might avoid small streets. And so we take them to show them where um, a lot of the locals like to play. Uh, And we really like to um, talk to Melbourne's um, multicultural makeup. Um, So one of the things that I normally say on tour, one of the stats that I provide is that um, in a population of kind of at the moment 4.8, 4.9 million people across suburban Melbourne, uh, we speak over 200 different languages. Um, And um, I have never met anyone from Melbourne that doesn't hold the badge of multiculturalism with anything less than honour and delight. So we're very, very pleased to have that many um, cultures mixing together. And it also means that we're spoilt for choice in terms of um, what to eat, yeah, because everybody kind of brings their um, culinary contributions to the city and to the culture. So um, in the foodie tour we try to, the savoury elements usually come from Asia. Uh, We talk a little bit about Southeast Asia and Vietnam. We talk a bit about the Chinese contribution to Melbourne. Um, You cannot um, talk about food in Melbourne without talking about Chinese food, I believe. Um, The two cultures you have to talk about, I think, are the Chinese and the Italians um, because the contribution has been so fundamental. Um, We also have a little French suite so we could talk about some local people and their trips to France and what they've brought back. Um, We obviously have a coffee. Hmm. Uh, and interestingly, we don't talk much about Italy at all when we have a coffee because the coffee that we have on the tour is fundamentally um, different from a traditional Italian espresso. Um, we talk much more about how coffee, how Melbourne has kind of, and Australia have morphed into their own style of coffee, even though it is an espresso style. Um, we don't talk about Italian food until we get to sweets, which is our gelato stop. 
um, and the lady who owns the gelato shop. Um, and this is actually quite common in Melbourne with our very, very good range of gelateria. Um, that a lot of the people that own them have actually gone to study gelato at this place in northern Italy that is kind of commonly referred to as Gelato University, just outside of Bologna in northern Italy. So you can go there and do courses and it's really where you learn how to make it um, as an Italian would require. You know, Monique, it's so funny that you mentioned that because what you don't know is that I was a gelato maker for a few years and... I went to Gelato University. Um, I Off didn't. Go. <laughs> I didn't go to Italy, uh, but the the guy who taught the course he came over to the U.S. from uh, Bologna and uh, taught us gelato making and. Off we Amazing. went and started making gelato. So I'm familiar with Gelato University. The company that runs it is uh, Carpigiani, who yep. manufactures gelato machines. It's a it's a great. Yep. They are the gold standard for gelato machines. So if you see a gelato place and you look in the back in the kitchen and you see they have a Carpigiani, that's a really good sign. Um, but anyway, not to interrupt you. Tell me more about gelato in all. Melbourne. So um, the beautiful thing about the place that we go is um, they have all the classics done really well, you know, your pistachio and also your lemons, um, uh, sorbetti and all that kind of thing. Um, but they also have this ever-changing list of specials, which sometimes they throw in really delicious Italian flavours like a buffalo ricotta with almond and lemon, and sometimes they do Australian favourites. They'll take a, like, a local candy flavour and turn it into a gelato, which is always popular with the locals, and sometimes it means I have to do a a little bit of translation about what's on the specials board. Um, Brent, have you ever heard of a cookie called an iced vovo? Iced vovo? No, never. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds interesting, though. Yes. Tell me about it. It's um, it's a picture paints a thousand words. So if the listeners are interested, they can just Google iced vovo. Vovo is just V-O-V-O, -O, but it's essentially a little shortbread biscuit um, comes in a packet, so you can imagine the size of it. Uh, and then they pipe a little bit of marshmallow on, a little bit of raspberry jam, and coated in coconut. Mm. So you can imagine all those flavors rolled through some um, gelato. Um, it's just kind of one of the funny little specials that they sometimes do at this place, which is kind of fun. What's your favorite flavor of gelato? Mine is pistachio. Pistachio is the classic. Pistachio and um, and hazelnut are definitely the classics. Um, my particular favourite um, is something called honeycomb, um, which I find very interesting that many of my American guests have never heard of honeycomb. Um, sometimes if I translate it to something like sea toffee or sponge toffee, right. that rings a bell for some people. Um, uh, but often, um, often I kind of have to explain it in another way. Um, but yeah, a vanilla ice cream with chocolate coated honeycomb, um, smashed up and mixed through it is a very delicious thing. Um, obviously not traditional Italian, um, but something that we definitely find in Melbourne. And the beautiful thing I like about, um, the gelato, the place that we go to is that one of the overarching um, principles is that everything they put in their gelato must be made from scratch. So if they are doing iced vovo flavor, they have made their own iced vovos first. And of course they make their own honeycomb first and they make it with real honey. So rather than the commercial candy bar kind of, you know, mostly made with sugar flavor, you do get this beautiful kind of taste of real honey through the gelato as well um, through the kind of candy swirl, which is delicious. Oh, 
Sounds great. These folks, they, <laughs> they are people after my own heart because when I was making gelato, this is what I would call putting on my mad scientist hat, you know, and just figuring out mm. different flavors that go together. And we would grow lemongrass, for example, in our backyard in a, mm-hmm. in a big pot. And I would infuse lemongrass into, uh, into different flavors and stuff like that. So uh, this sounds like a place that I definitely need to go to when we come to uh, Melbourne. You mentioned Chinese cuisine, and I don't want to give the short shift to that. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, Chinese cuisine in Melbourne, maybe dumplings? Sure, sure. Well, um, another tour that we have is called our Dumpling Discovery Walk. Um, And so for dumpling enthusiasts, of which there are many in Melbourne, we've had lots of locals over the years come along and just a little bit of a guilty pleasure to come on a dumpling tour because they said they just love it so much. Um, I didn't realise that this was kind of a Melbourne thing until I left Melbourne. Um, But it is a very um, common thing on a kind of Friday lunchtime if you're in the office and everybody kind of wants to go out and have something not too expensive but something everyone loves, let's go out for dumplings. Or maybe after work, you might want to go out for a couple of beers and a snack or something. Let's go out for dumplings. There are a lot of dumpling houses in Melbourne, not just in Chinatown, but sprinkled through the city. And they all have a kind of slightly different style of things that they do. So um, very, very popular dish. And I know that um, um, dumplings can mean different things to different people, um, but everyone's kind of got their favourite style of, um, you know, delightful little Chinese fillings wrapped up in that beautiful pastry. When we were in New Zealand, one thing that I noticed was there was a lot of Malaysian cuisine, but they mm. but they were made by ethnic Chinese who had left uh, sure. left Malaysia and gone to New Zealand. Do you have a yeah. similar community like that in Melbourne? Yeah, we do. And one thing that I'm quite proud of here in in Melbourne as well is that um, the general population has a pretty good start has a pretty good idea about regionality in Asia. So um, if you're going to a Malaysian restaurant, someone might say, oh, which part of Malaysia is it from? Are they ethnically Chinese? Are they from Penang? Um, are we going to eat Luxor or are we going to eat Chakwe Tiao or something else? Wow. You know, um, or if you're going to a Thai place, they might say, oh, what type of Thai is it? Is it Northern Thai or is it Southern Thai? Like, and they'll have a preference for different regions of different areas in Asia. Um, and, um, so that kind of says to me that, you know, maybe in New Zealand, there's a recognition of different kind of ethnic groups through different countries, not just saying Vietnamese versus Thai, but also regionality within those countries. That's a high level of culinary sophistication. If they're asking about the specific regions. Yeah. It's just because we have access to it and it's, um, and it's something that the, um, one of the reasons that we have such great diversity in Melbourne, um, at all ends of the kind of budgetary scale as well, if you want cheap and cheerful or very high end is because there's an appetite for this and an appetite for this kind of learning. And there's a culture of it. Um, and you talk to restaurateurs about it and they say, well, the only reason that we can create these menus and put these menus together is because people are curious and people people like to come out and eat different things. And so without a culture of that, um, it's hard for us. It's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy, if you know, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. It makes for a very dynamic food scene, I think. Exactly. It does make for a really dynamic food scene, and it makes for a food scene that is open to newcomers as well. Let's jump to wine, 
because mm. Australia is hugely popular as a uh, as a wine destination, and folks yep. in North America, here in Europe, they can find Australian wine in any good liquor store. So um, what's the wine regions near Melbourne? And tell me about some of your favorite wines that you enjoy. Melbourne is absolutely blessed in that we sit in the middle of, basically, if you drive for one one hour to 90 minutes in any direction from downtown Melbourne, you'll hit a different wine region with a different specialty. So um, north, south, east, west, and um, further afield than that as well. So we are absolutely blessed for wine country and wine touring as well. There's a lot of great companies here that if you come and do a walking tour with me when you're in Melbourne, the next day or the day before, you can definitely be out in the wine regions for a day. And although it's great to spend a night there as well, you can do it in a day and be back because they are so close to the city. Um, the best known wine region, the most famous um, just outside of Melbourne is the Yarra Valley. So the main river that runs through town is the Yarra River. So if you head out to the, where that runs through its valley, that is a very beautiful wine region. Um, and um, the specialty or the best known varietal out there is a Pinot Noir. Um, if you head south of Melbourne, um, where many of the more wealthy Melburnians will have their holiday houses, I probably refer to it a little bit like the Hamptons of Melbourne, um, is the Mornington Peninsula. Um, and it's blessed because it's also coastal being a peninsula. So it has, um, and the, the wine um, there is in a town called Red Hill. Uh, and there's lots of different varieties down on the peninsula, uh, but you're probably looking at, um, again, Pinot Noir and a little bit of, um, probably a little bit of um, some nice white, so some a Sauvignon Blanc um, and also some Chardonnay, but lots of lovely wineries down there. Um, and then actually my favourite region um, for actual drinking of wine is directly north of Melbourne, and that's because um, it is an area called Heathcote, um, spelt Heathcote, but we pronounce it Heathcote, and it rivals the Barossa Valley for um, really big, bold, um, dark reds, um, and it's really beautiful countryside out there as well. And I would say that not very many um, non-Australians would have heard of the Heathcote Shiraz, um, but if you do get your hands on a bottle um, and you do like those big, bold reds that you can sell her, um, I recommend seeking it out. Great advice, because that's an area that I have never even heard of. and Yeah, really delicious. And you're so fortunate to be able to live in a wine region. I mean, I've lived in a lot of places, um, and now we live in Portugal, and we're literally minutes away from a beautiful wine region. And I got to say, being in a place where you can just be at a winery in a few minutes and, you know, just pick up some wine to take home or enjoy a glass at the winery and see the wonderful out in nature vineyard. It's, it's a real treasure to be able to have that on your doorstep. You can probably drive past some cork trees on the way as well, can't you, to bottle you one? <laughs> Absolutely. I can walk by some cork trees. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One of the craziest things when we first came here was I went, uh, we were walking, I forget where we were going, you know, just to run some errands. And we went by this little, um, warehouse and stacked out front, probably 15 feet tall, were the outer layers of the cork trees just stacked up, drying, waiting to be shipped and processed. And I was like, oh yeah, you know, I've only seen corks in a bottle and, but it's got to come from somewhere, yeah. right? <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I loved seeing the tall trees when I was in Portugal as well. I never thought about it, as you said, coming from somewhere, but there they are. Yeah, and um, it's a big deal here in Portugal. One of the interesting things, Mm. I'm, I'm getting a little off topic here, but one of the interesting things is what they do is they mark the trees with the last two digits of the year that um, they last harvested the cork because you can only harvest it every eight to 10 years. So when you see a cork tree that has like a, a 12 or a 14 on it, you know that one's getting ready to be harvested very shortly. But if it has like a uh, 21 or a 22 on it, you know they're going to have to wait several years before they can actually harvest that tree. Didn't know that before. Mm. Now I do. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Let's talk about a few specific dishes that you can enjoy when you're in Melbourne, because as I was researching this, I found a few and I was like, want to try that, want to try that, want to try that. Um, sure. And I want to I want to start with um, a treat called a hot jam donut. This one really piqued <laughs> my interest. <laughs> I'll tell you a story about hot jam donuts. There is a, at the Queen Victoria Market, there is a food truck um, and the food truck is called the American Donut Kitchen. Okay. Now, I don't know how American it is, but anyway, it's been there for such a long time. My mother, who um, is getting on in her years, she immigrated as a teenager with her parents here in um, pre-1960, and her first job as a kid was um, selling something at a food stall or somewhere at the Queen Victoria Markets, and she tells a story that she used to get paid in with a, a few pennies in cash, and her and her friends would immediately run to the American Donut Kitchen food truck and spend it on hot jam donuts. Oh. So that food truck has been there since my mother was a girl, and it's still pretty much using the same recipe. My understanding is that those are, um, are they're donuts, they're filled with jam, and they're fried to order. So in other words, you're getting it hot out of the fryer. Is, is that right? Did I hear that correctly? I think that's the way, um, ideally, that's the way it would work. I think because they have such a queue now, maybe a few of them might be a little bit pre-prepared. Right, right. But there is certainly a guy in there all morning and all afternoon frying them, so they haven't been long out of the fryer. Haven't been long out of there, don't worry. So this would seem to me, when I first heard about this, I thought this would be a great late-night snack, like after-bar food, but it sounds like it's more like a a treat for folks to enjoy maybe in the morning or maybe midday. Yeah, it's definitely something you have with a coffee. Okay, okay. In the morning. Because I I would be hankering one after uh, having a few glasses of wine, I think. (laughs) I don't think there's anything wrong with that, Brent. Okay. Um, Another treat I want to talk about is uh, called a Parma. Because I oh, I started yeah. reading about Melbourne and I kept reading Parma, Parma, Parma. I'm like, what is, is, is it cheese? Is it Parmesan cheese? What is it? So um, talk to us about Parma a little bit. It's a, it's a shortening because Australians don't like to say too many syllables for any one word, um, including for their own country. So we have shortened, most Australians won't refer to Australia. It's too long to say. We just refer to it Australia. <laughs> <laughs> Two down to two syllables. And so um, a parma is a chicken parmigiana. Okay. It is, I have to say that it is probably as close to a national dish as we have. Um, If you really had to go down that path, so probably meat pies and chicken parmigianas in terms of what most people will, what would be more most broadly available at the pub across the whole nation. Um, Fish and each pub would probably have on the menu fish and chips. 
and a chicken parmigiana. It's also as close as we get in Australia to having kind of regional language. Anyone that tells you that Australia has regional languages is wrong. It is one language of English. We've got a few different accents, but that's about it. But the whether you refer to a, a chicken parmigiana as a parma or a parmi tells me which state you're from. Okay. So here in Victoria, um, we would definitely call it a parma. But in New South Wales or in South Australia, they would refer to it quite staunchly as a palmy. And you can get this at any any bar or pub? Any pub, yeah. So the great Australian institution of the pub. So you would go out um, to the pub for lunch or dinner. Um, it's a pretty hefty lunch. I have to say I'd probably fall asleep doing any work in the afternoon. It's a big meal. Um, it is a chicken breast um, crumbed and... Um, it's not deep fried. It's not in a batter. It's kind of pan fried, okay, so just like a normal schnitzel. Uh, and then on top you would have usually a slice of ham, some tomato sauce like a passata, and then some sort of melted yellow cheese. So the whole thing gets crumbed and cooked and then it gets grilled so that the, the passata is um, hot and the cheese on top is melted. Now there are variations on the parma. You can have it with ham or without ham. Most pubs will do it with ham. Um, and you can go to certain restaurants where they will have a list of different palmers. So they'll get a little bit crazy, a little mad scientist with their palmers as well in terms of what they put on. They might put some jalapenos on there. Um, they might put some um, Cala um, Calabrian enduia. Um, they might, you know, put a slice of canned pineapple. Everyone in Australia likes mixing canned pineapple in with um, savoury food. Um, just like a Hawaiian pizza kind of vibe going on. So there's lots of variations on the parma uh, and it's always served with um, chips. You would call them fries. Um, and sometimes a little token salad as well, which nobody eats. <laughs> just to make you feel better about <laughs> eating this giant yeah. slab of uh, of chicken parm. All right. Yeah. Fantastic. So that's um, that's the meal and it's commonly served with a, with a pint of beer. Hmm. Even better, or a pot, or a pot of beer in in um, where I'm from. The one last thing I wanted to ask you about, Monique, is um, is cheese because I don't oh, necessarily sure. think about cheese when I think about Australia. But you've got a huge countryside. There must be lots of dairy farms there. And I read about something called a black pearl cheese. Um, maybe you want to talk about that, or maybe you have some other kind of cheese that you'd like to talk about. But tell me about cheese in uh, Australia and Melbourne specifically. Sure. Well, if you think about um, the kind of environment that produces wine, um, quite close to that often is a similar kind of environment where dairies might be um, 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 amenable in the same kind of climate. Does that make sense? Yes. So if you think about France, you know, where the red wine grapes grow, also pretty good for goats and sheep and, you know, small-scale dairies and that kind of thing. So it goes to say that in all the different wine regions across Australia, often there's pretty good cheese making as well. Um, I don't know about the black pearl, to be honest with you. Um, what I do know about is that we've got some fantastic um, cheese makers in Australia. Um, some of the most delicious cheeses, especially goats, especially chef, um, I've had a local, um, and we, we have a lot of very strict import laws in Australia to do with importing unpasteurized goods for biosecurity concerns. So if any of the unpasteurized, um, cheeses must be made locally. 
Does that make sense? Yes, yes. Uh, same same in the U.S. Uh, raw cheese, yeah. raw, raw milk cheese is very difficult to come by. So um, yeah. you'll see small farms that make their own. And it sounds like you have a similar uh, rule there where you're not going to find like raw milk uh, French cheese coming in in Australia. Except for Roquefort. <laughs> you you got to make the exception for Roquefort, right? <laughs> There's a long story that goes back, actually. We've got one particularly um, high-profile um, cheese expert in Australia, and he fought against um, the regulations against Roquefort for a long time. Um, and so Roquefort goes through stages of being allowed and not being allowed into the country. But there's obviously a whole lot of other great European raw milk cheeses that um, are still regulated against. Um, in fact, the um, production of raw milk cheeses in Australia for sale or raw milk is also, to the best of my knowledge, illegal. And so you'll see at farmers markets, particularly dairies selling um, bath milk, bottled bath milk. And everybody knows that it's just unpasteurized milk and people buy it um, and they have to buy it under the premise that, oh, I'm just buying this to take a bath in it. Oh, my goodness. It's not for consumption. Oh, my goodness. So it is labeled as bath milk and it is sold. And, of course, we all know people are going home to drink it or make cheese from it or whatever else or yogurt, but it can't be sold as an edible product. It's at your own risk. This is black market milk. I love it. <laughs> Such it's a great story. <laughs> having said that, though, having said that, that's very small scale production and we have lots of fantastic organic and biodynamic dairies who um, do pasteurize their milk in a gentle way and they sell it all across the country. Don't worry. So we have very good quality um, milks um, in, in, in lots of different labels. Um, but there is sometimes at the farmer's markets, you will see that kind of black market bath milk. Well, Monika Bayer from Walk Melbourne, this has been a great conversation. Um, if folks want to get in touch with you, we've got your website in the show notes or just go to walkmelbourne.com.au. Thank you so much for enlightening us about your great foodie city of Melbourne, Australia. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. Oh, it's been such a pleasure, Brett. Thanks for having me. Okay, there you go. Never thought I'd have a conversation about bath milk on the podcast, but that was so very entertaining. You can get in touch with Monique and book a tour at walkmelbourne.com.au. I've also got a link in the show notes at radiomisfits.com slash DED246. Well, that's it for this week. Next week, we're in Palermo, Sicily for vibrant outdoor markets and hipster rice balls. Don't miss that. Until then, get over to DestinationEatDrink.com. There's lots of new stuff there, including my brand new foodie travel guide to Evora, Portugal. Get that at DestinationEatDrink.com slash Evora. That's E-V-O-R-A. I also have a new video out. It's about the best places to eat in Braga, Portugal. You can watch that at DestinationEatDrink.com. Just click on the Videos tab, or you can watch it online at YouTube. Uh, that's at DestinationEatDrink946 at YouTube. And while you're on the website, subscribe to the newsletter and keep up to date on Destination Eat Drink. You can also make a contribution. That would be most welcome. Just click on the Contribute button. 
And while you're on the website, subscribe to the newsletter to keep up to date on Destination Eat Drink. And if you can make a contribution, that would be most welcome. Just click on the Contribute tab at DestinationEatDrink.com. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by the Radio Misfits Podcast Network and a guy who likes his Baileys with bath milk, Ed Silla. Thanks, Ed. I'm Brent Peterson, and I'll see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network.